there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and episode 15. Now, I'm going to give the usual health warning here that the information in this episode may be triggering or upsetting, and so listener discretion is advised. Okay, so where I left off in episode 14, I was talking about how the Byford report highlighted that if the senior officers had just put the photo fits together from 1976 onwards, one man's face would have jumped out at them. Well, in my opinion, they would have seen the same face even prior to 1976. Now, I'm going to explain that. In episode four, you'll recall that I compared Tracy Brown's 1975 photo fit with Marilyn Moore's 1977 photo fit, and they were so alike, it was uncanny. I also posted those photo fits on IG and Twitter, alongside a picture of PS. Again, they were staggeringly similar to him. Now, if you haven't checked those out, I highly recommend you do. So go over to IG and you'll be able to see those particular images on at Crime Analyst. So firstly, if they had taken Tracy Brown's attack seriously and circulated her photo fit extensively, perhaps other women would have come forward, like Anna Rogolsky or the unnamed prostitute or Olive Smelt and or others including those who knew P.S. like Trevor Birdsall. I mean, perhaps Trevor Birdsall would have grown a conscience earlier, given that Tracy was a young girl and that he was with P.S. the night Olive was attacked and the unnamed prostitute. In fact, Anna Rogolsky did compile a photo fit, and I'll post that on Instagram and on Twitter alongside Tracy Brown and Marilyn Moores. Now, remember... Anna Rogolsky was attacked four miles away from Silsden and just five weeks earlier, but they failed to link both Anna and Tracy's attacks. And remember, Olive Smelt was attacked just weeks before Tracy Brown in August 1975, and she spoke with him too and said that he had a local accent and was certainly not a Geordie. This point was made in the Byford Report, page 51, which has been shared with me. So they could have linked these attacks, the photo fits and the descriptions, and the Byford report stated the following. The West Yorkshire detectives could have improved their knowledge of their suspect by collating, brackets, as the Damali review team did, close brackets, the evidence and photo fit pictures provided by women who had survived hammer or head injury attacks in West Yorkshire. The criteria which could usefully have been applied was A, that the women were unaccompanied women but were not always prostitutes. B, that the lead-up to the attack was, one, following on foot, brackets stalking, as for examples in victim's name redacted, times three, leech, walls and hill. Two, by walking and talking to the victim, as in victim's name redacted times two, smelt and Whitaker. Three, by pick-up in a car, as in Long, Moore, Richter, and by implication the other prostitute victims, and C, the attack itself was always from the rear. Yes, exactly that. He stalked the women, and he talked with them beforehand, and he didn't stand out as an out-of-towner, i.e. he was local. And yet, the detectives at the time didn't make these same obvious connections about the attacks, and the killer, 
And they went off in a completely different, erroneous direction, contrary to the evidence. I mean, this is really basic analysis at this point, and it echoes my findings exactly. Now, you'll recall that I highlighted my offence criteria from my analysis in two episodes, including the last episode, episode 14. So a quick word about language again. The term unaccompanied women. I wonder how many of you bristled at that as I did, because it's loaded. It smacks of women doing something wrong for being out without a man, for being unescorted and almost up to no good. They're the sort of connotations that come from that. Why not just say lone female? Again, this is leakage to me, and there's a tinge of victim blame and misogyny going on here. And so back to the missing pages of the Byford report, it went on, and I quote, Had the criteria been applied to the list of undetected assaults on women, the overriding conclusion would have been that the suspect, A, was a local man, B, had hair on his face. C, was not coloured. D, was between 20 to 35 years of age. Now, I know the women said that he was local and that he had a beard and moustache. And they also said that he was white. So I don't know why they would say C, was not coloured. But instinctively, again, I bristled when I read that. You see, for me, this is supposed to be the report that gets everything right. But like I said before, and I've said it many times, that in my own experience, when I've seen one ism, like sexism, there are normally others. They normally co-occur together. But going back to the fact that these detectives just ignored all of these women who said that it was a local man, these really are basic errors, but they were basic errors that had major repercussions and consequences, and they shouldn't be glossed over or minimised. You see, as I said before, P.S. could have been caught before 1975, in my opinion. To my count, there are at least seven opportunities that I found to link offences and arrest P.S. before he killed Wilma in 1975, and there were numerous attacks after Wilma that weren't linked. So perhaps now is a good time to tell you about some of the other offences that I've discovered. So I'm going to firstly talk about two offences pre-1975, and you can let me know what you think. On Friday, the 29th of December, 1972, a 19-year-old unnamed female typist left the pub in Wakefield at around 10.30pm. It was a foggy night, and as she walked along, she realised that she was being followed and turned around and saw a man with staring eyes, dark longish hair and a beard. She considered darting in to the Swan with Two Necks pub to avoid him, but decided at last minute not to and continued walking quickly past dark passageways running between some of the terraced houses. As she reached the row of houses where she lived, she was suddenly grabbed from behind. She screamed loudly and the attacker covered her mouth, telling her repeatedly to shut up. After she screamed again, the man punched her on the back of the head with his fist. He then pushed her into a low wall, and she grazed her face. Fortunately, a man in a house nearby, who happened to be a prison officer, heard the commotion. He opened his bedroom window to find out what was happening, and then he came running out of his house to help. He ran after the perpetrator, 
but unfortunately he didn't catch him. The Clark typist described the attacker as mid-twenties, medium build, 5 feet 10 inches in height, with long dark hair, dark eyebrows and a beard and a moustache, including a tuft between the chin and the mouth. She was able to provide a photo fit of the man, which I'll share on social media. At the time, the victim said that she thought he looked like the singer Cat Stevens, and she took a picture of the singer with her to the police station. And then, over eight years later, when P.S. was eventually arrested and she saw photographs of him, she told her family that she believed that P.S. had been the one who had attacked her. Now, having told you about the attack on the 19-year-old typist, who remains unnamed, I should also let you know that some people, including numerous police officers, have said that this is a different type of attack, and it's not linked because the attacker put his hand over her mouth first, and he hit her over the head with his fist. But I'm going to play the other side with my behavioural analysis and my experience lens. We have to remember that this was 1972, so it would be earlier on in P.S.'s offending timeline. And again, offenders work on the basis of opportunity, availability, desirability and accessibility. Offences and attacks are not always as planned as what people may think. And it doesn't always go to plan. You see, some attacks are opportunistic. And if the desirability is strong, the offender will improvise. And so the M.O., the modus operandi, may well change. I've seen this time and time again in linked series across my career. In fact, in one prolific serial killer case that I worked, and I'm not going to name the killer or his moniker, but I will tell you that he was targeting and killing young girls and women in London, Surrey and surrounding areas. In most of the stranger attacks on lone females, he approached from behind and hit the women over the back of the head. In most of the attacks, he used a hammer. However, in one attack... He used his car. I'll tell you a little bit about this attack as it illustrates the point that I'm making. As a young woman got off the bus in southwest London late one evening, having been out with friends, she sensed danger from a car that pulled out of the shadows and moved to be situated in front of the bus. Rather than walk past the car, she went behind the bus and then crossed over the road. But as she drew level with the car on the other side of the road, the driver revved the engines, the headlights were already on, and he aimed the car directly at her. The car crashed into her and took her off her feet, and as she was on the ground, confused and in pain, trying to work out what had happened, she saw the driver look in the wing mirror and look down at her, and he then put the car in reverse, and he drove the car back over her body, and then he drove off. Now, I was listening to the victim describe what happened to her on a TV show called Crime Watch one night. The Crime Watch was a show that used to be on at this time on Monday nights, and often there were appeals for information about unsolved crimes, and I normally watched it. Now, as I was working this particular night, typing up my comparative case analysis chart, comparing and contrasting other potentially linked offences in the series, I was half listening and watching Crime Watch, 
and I was listening to what she was saying. You see, I'd already noticed that she looked remarkably similar to the other victims in the case that I was working on, and so my interest was already piqued. But the minute I heard her say that, I stopped typing. She had my full attention. I then grabbed an A to Z map and realised that her attack was within a three-mile square radius of many of the others. I then picked up my phone and I called the head of homicide at New Scotland Yard and I told him to put his TV on as I thought we had another attack committed by the same killer. Only miraculously, this victim had survived, thank goodness. Her name was Kate Sheedy. And what an incredibly strong and brave woman Kate was and is. I was shocked to learn that this case was initially crimed as a hit and run and they were appealing on Crime Watch for witnesses to the attack or to anyone who knew anything. But after I'd heard Kate talk on Crime Watch, I organised a crime scene visit with the detective and having visited the crime scene and read her statement, as well as listening to Kate's interview and her 999 call, I knew this attack was not a hit and run, and I linked the attack as an A2 offence. An A2 offence most likely committed by the same offender in the crime series that I was working on. Now, as I said, I knew that this wasn't a hit and run. Of that, I could be sure. You see, the script for a hit and run is just that. It's normally accidental. Someone then panics. Perhaps they drive off immediately. Or perhaps they get out the car, they panic a bit, maybe they call for help, and maybe they then drive off. But that's not what happened here. This was purposeful. This was intentional. He targeted her. He waited for her to get off the bus. He bided his time. He hit her with his car and then looked down at her on the ground, lying there injured and confused, and drove the car right over her as he watched, and then he drove off. I understood the psychology, his mission, his aim. His objective was to obliterate her, to kill her. The aim was the same as hitting a woman over the back of the head from behind and then leaving. And geographically speaking, the attack on Kate was within a three-mile square radius of the other stranger attacks on lone females. However, everyone told me that I was wrong, that it wasn't linked, and some said far more hostile things than that, which I won't repeat here. But I had been analysing and profiling violent men for a decade at that time, and in this case I understood the victimology, the offender behaviour and decision-making, the motivation and the geography, and understanding the motivation is key. He intended to kill her. There's no two ways about it. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. 
Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Now I stuck to my analysis and made it clear that there were cameras looking down at the crime scene where Kate was attacked. I'd clocked them when I did my crime scene visit and I requested that the tapes were seized and watched. The head of homicide investigations and the senior investigating officer agreed and eventually the Link series investigative team seized the six tapes and watched all six of them and the car was found just as Kate described that moved out of the shadows as the bus pulled up and then parked up in front of the bus. Now, the vehicle registration wasn't clear to begin with, but the tape was cleaned up, and that took a little bit of time, but when the image was clearer, the full vehicle index registration could be seen, and the car was registered to a man who we later identified as the killer of all the women. Now, if these tapes had been seized and watched, all six of them, during the original investigation, the killer would have been identified far earlier and he would have been arrested, which then would have meant that other women would not have died at his hands. And that's homicide prevention right there. It's why one of my golden rules is get the basics right and the rest will follow. And my other golden rule, as you all know well by now, is always trust your instincts. Did you notice how Kate sensed danger when she was getting off of the bus? Doing the basics right is about sitting and watching the six tapes all the way through, despite the fact you may not even know what you're looking for. And trusting your instincts? Well, did you notice how I said that Kate sensed danger when she went to get off the bus? That was something that struck me straight away. You see, I believe intuitively she knew that she was in danger and she understood that it was only her getting off of the bus and that no one was meeting her. And when that car moved in front of the bus, it moved as if it was someone waiting for her. Intuitively, she knew that something was wrong and she was right. 
You see, I believe Kate's brain made that calculation at a subconscious level. The brain makes trillions of calculations per second based on all the sensory information that it's receiving. And that's why the gift of fear is very important and you must always trust your instincts. We have more brain cells in our stomach than dogs have in their heads. So that sense when something sticks or when you feel fear or dread, you must always follow it as Kate tried to do. And lastly, the killer's desirability in this case was so strong and he wanted to attack Kate, he had seen her on the bus, that he decided to use the car as a weapon. He used what was to hand at the time. And in my experience, offenders will and do adapt. They will improvise and their MO may well change, as I've said before. And it's also important to note where an offence is in the timeline in the series and in an offender's offending career. And so going back to the attack on the 19-year-old typist in 1972, this attack was interrupted and incomplete, and we don't know what he was going to do once he overpowered her. And furthermore, as I previously said, things don't always go to plan. The fantasy and reality are two very different things. Now let me explain that a little bit more in terms of behaviour and analysis. You see, the offender will fantasise about all the things that he will do over and over in his head, and he'll play out the attack thousands and thousands of times in his head before the in vivo tryout. In vivo means in real life, before he does it in real life. And when he grabs the victim in real life, she may be non-compliant, she may scream, she may fight back, but she didn't in his fantasy. And so he didn't think about that. Therefore, when it doesn't go to plan, he has to think on his feet, he has to improvise. And you see, victims are not homogenous. They don't always behave in the same way. And perpetrators rarely think about that, as in their heads, in the fantasy, it all goes to plan and script perfectly. And then when that's not enough anymore, they have to try it out in the real world. And in the real world, it's a different story. And so I believe that he hit her over the head with his fist, as that was the only thing at his disposal, and he had to think on his feet, and he wanted to stop her from screaming and alerting other people to what was going on. But the next time he goes out, he'll do things differently. Perhaps he'll carry a knife in his pocket, or another weapon. Perhaps he'll engage her in conversation beforehand, or maybe he'll hit her straight away in a blitz attack, but he'll learn to adapt in order to achieve his aims. Serial killers do not emerge fully formed. They learn their tradecraft over time. And so with that having been said, on the balance of probabilities, how many men are there with beards and moustaches and staring eyes, attacking lone females and hitting them over the back of the head from behind late at night in Bradford and the surrounding areas? It's possible there are two or more fitting the same description, using the same MO, with the same motivation, but it's highly unlikely in my opinion. I've learned through my behavioural analysis that in later attacks, PS engaged the women in conversation and I opined that it was most likely to lull them into a false sense of security and then he surprise attacked them from behind and so they never saw it coming. They never stood a chance to scream or to fight back. 
I said at the start that I believe this most likely to be learned behaviour. Learned behaviour and adapted because in other attacks it had not worked well for him. This is exactly how MOs, modus operandi, evolve as offenders learn what works, and so it makes no sense at all when others have said that this offence is not linked due to his following her, blitz attacking her and using his fist as the weapon. So take a look at the photo fit that she did that I've posted on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think based on victimology, MO, modus operandi, crime scene assessment, and bear in mind that it's not a completed attack, the geography, and the photo fit. Okay, so now I want to tell you about Gloria Wood. On November the 11th, 1974, 28-year-old student Gloria Wood was walking across the school playing fields close to her home in Bradford. It was about 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. when a man approached her and asked if he could carry her bags. Gloria declined the offer, and the next thing she recalled was waking up in hospital. Gloria had been hit four times on the head with a ball-peen hammer. Importantly, again, the attack was interrupted by some boys who heard the commotion. Gloria described the attacker as early 30s, short curly beard and dark hair, and she also said that he was smartly dressed in a dark suit. When P.S. was arrested and Gloria saw photos of him, she believed that the man who had attacked her was P.S. And notably, P.S. did use ball-peen hammers in many of the attacks. Okay, so just to recap, I've included these two attacks. Firstly, the attack on the 19-year-old unnamed typist in 1972 and the attack on Gloria Wood in 1974, along with the 1975 attacks on Anna Rajolsky, Olive Smelt and Tracy Brown, along with the attack on the unnamed prostitute and the going equipped for theft offence in 1969. And so to my count, that's at least seven other potential opportunities to identify and arrest P.S. prior to him killing Wilma. And so again, it's not just the nine listed interviews with P.S. in the Byford report where there were opportunities to identify him, arrest him and stop him from harming and killing so many other women. This is so deeply troubling to me. Although what I will say in Lord Byford's defence is that he did highlight that it was not within his initial remit to look at other linked offences, but he did include it because, as he said, and I'll quote directly from the report, We feel it is highly improbable that the crimes in respect of which PS has been charged and convicted are the only ones attributed to him. This feeling is reinforced by examining the details of a number of assaults on women since 1969, which, in some ways, clearly fall into the established pattern of P.S.'s overall modus operandi. It is my firm conclusion that between 1969 and 1980, P.S. was probably responsible for many attacks on women, which he has not admitted, not only in West Yorkshire and Manchester, but also in other parts of the country. Well, that's all very well and good, but there appears to be a glaring omission of any extensive review of other potentially linked offences in other parts of the country, and there was no real emphasis on all the attacks committed by PS prior to 1975, and he only really talks about potential opportunities to identify and arrest PS from 1976 onwards based on the interviews and photo fits. 
Now, as I've said many times before, attacks on lone women like this, in this way, with this modus operandi and this motivation, are very rare indeed. And they were even rarer at this time. It's still my opinion, based on all that I know, that he could have been caught at least in 1975, but even before then, if the women reporting being attacked had been taken seriously and the cases had been prioritised and joined up. And so I think you can now probably understand why I take such issue with when people say that Wilma McCann was the first victim. Because I know, and now you know, that she wasn't. And again, this just creates a false narrative about what happened. And I wonder how that must feel for all those other women. They've just been written out of the narrative. And there were many other opportunities thereafter, some of which I talked about in episode four. Okay, so just as a reminder and recap, as I know it's a lot of information to take in, and there's also much more to come, from 1976, there was the attack on Marcella Claxton, and Marcella produced an excellent photo fit from when she was attacked in Round Hay Park. Now again, if Marcella's, Tracy and Anna's attacks had been linked, all the attacks from 1976 onwards could have been prevented. And there are many other potential attacks which I want to tell you about, as it seems like the right time now to focus on them, so that you can see and understand what I see as a criminal behavioural analyst, and then of course you can make your own mind up. Just two weeks before Emily Jackson was murdered, 18-year-old Rosemary Steed was hit over the back of the head on Wednesday the 6th of January 1976. Rosemary worked at the Sam Martin supermarket in Wakefield Road, Bradford, and she left the supermarket later than usual on Wednesday night and missed her bus. At about 6.30pm, Rosemary reached the small village of Queensbury, which is on the moors. It was dark, and as Rosemary was walking along, she was attacked suddenly from behind. Rosemary was left unconscious on the ground. The attack was witnessed by pedestrians and drivers who described the attacker as 25 to 30 years old, 5 feet 9 inches tall, slim build, with dark hair, a moustache and a beard. The attack on Rosemary wasn't linked with Emily or Wilma because Rosemary wasn't a prostitute, but nor was it linked with the earlier attacks on the 19-year-old typist Gloria Wood, Anna Rajolski, Olive Smelt or Tracy Brown. On the 29th of August 1976, 39-year-old Maureen Hogan left the Pentagon nightclub in Bradford at around 1.30am and started to walk home. Maureen was viciously attacked and left in a shop doorway covered in blood. A milkman found her some five hours later when doing his rounds. Maureen was rushed to the Bradford Royal Infirmary. Maureen had several head injuries and multiple stab wounds to her abdomen. Fortunately, Maureen survived the attack, but she couldn't give a description of the person who attacked her. Her injuries were, however, similar to Wilma's and Emily's. However, the attack wasn't linked. Maureen was a housewife, and again, that may well have been the reason why. But nor was Maureen's attack linked to the attack on the 19-year-old typist or Gloria Wood, Anna Rogowski, Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown, or Rosemary Steed's attack. 
Interestingly, Detective Superintendent Holland was in charge of the investigation into the attack on Maureen, and months later, he would move to the squad investigating the Lynx series, and as you know, he headed up the investigation. And so I have to ask, how and why were the Lynx not made? Was it yet again because Maureen was a housewife and not a prostitute? But even if that were the case... Why wasn't it linked with the attack on the 19-year-old typist Gloria Wood, Anna Rajolsky, Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown or Rosemary Steed's attacks? This really is confounding to me. On Tuesday, March 22nd, 1976, Barbara Ann Young, mother of two young children, was working as a prostitute to support her children. She was found by her friend in Broxholm Lane, Doncaster, bleeding and unconscious. When she came to, she told her friend that a punter had led her into the alleyway between Broxholm Lane and Christchurch Road and that he had attacked her. Barbara had extensive head injuries and her friend put her to bed, but sadly Barbara didn't make it through the night. The post-mortem revealed that Barbara had a fractured skull, which caused a massive hemorrhage as a result. At the time, Barbara was living at the Happy Days Caravan site in Hatfield, Doncaster, which is in South Yorkshire. Broxholm Lane was close to the M1 motorway, which was littered with lorry parks and cheap hotels, and it's been suggested that P.S. knew this area well due to his various driving jobs. And also remember that P.S. was arrested in Sheffield by South Yorkshire police officers. However, at no point did South Yorkshire police connect Barbara's murder to Wilma, Emily or Irene's, despite the injuries being very similar. What I can tell you is that P.S. was eventually questioned about the attack on Barbara, and he denied it. Now, I've read some accounts where people have said that P.S. gave a full account when he confessed, and therefore they say it's unlikely that he killed Barbara. What utter nonsense. My analysis of P.S. reveals a very different profile, and I'm going to get into my psychological autopsy of him in a later episode. The more information I have, the more accurate and informed my analysis will be, and that's why it's so important to link the right offences. And as I've said before, the offences and the victims, the crime scene assessment, it really does hold up a mirror to the offender. Okay, so now I want to tell you about Elizabeth Paravicini. Elizabeth was a mother to two young children, and she was born Elizabeth Graham, but she lived in Italy with her Italian husband, Rick. She had decided to see her parents in West London for a short holiday in September 1977. However, sadly, her family in Italy would never see her again. On the 9th of September 1977, 27-year-old Elizabeth was on her way back to her parents' house in The Grove, in Isleworth, when she was attacked. Elizabeth had been out the night before at a cinema in the West End and she was on her way back to her parents having caught the last tube at 12.45am. She had walked east along the A4 Great West Road and as she approached the private Parkfield housing estate, she was hit over the back of the head from behind by someone using what was most likely a ball-pane hammer. Elizabeth's skull fractured almost instantly. The killer then dragged her across the road and into a private garden shrubbery, She was left fully clothed and face down in the shrubbery and her handbag and shoes were left on the footpath where she was initially attacked. Elizabeth was just yards from her parents' house when she was struck over the back of the head. 
It was actually her father and sister who went looking for her, who found her body. She was just two minutes away from home. Now, it does sound to me like this attack may have been interrupted and was incomplete. One thing I think I can rule out is that this was a robbery, as whoever attacked her wasn't after her handbag and he dragged her to a secondary location. Therefore, whatever he dragged her to a secluded secondary location for, that was his motive. If it was solely about hiding her body, well, he left her shoes and handbag on full display, alerting anyone finding them to a problem, and therefore it makes no sense, and it was much more likely that he decamped quickly for some unknown reason. Maybe someone appeared on the scene or had heard something, for example. However, given Elizabeth's victimology, and that she was a lone female, attacked at night from behind, with what was most likely a hammer, and the fact that the killer moved her body to a secluded secondary location and that her handbag was left at the scene, using my offence criteria, Elizabeth's murder has all the hallmarks of P.S. Now to note the BGO, the blinding glimpse of the obvious, which is probably in many of your minds, Elizabeth was attacked and killed in London, and hence it's not up north as per my original criteria. However, knowing that P.S. spent lots of time on the road travelling, the geographic criteria would be amended once his timeline was clear and police services, particularly along the M1 corridor between London and Yorkshire and any area it was known that P.S. visited, should have been asked to submit similar offences using the criteria similar to mine. I also wonder about the time period the special notice detailed when it was circulated by Detective Chief Superintendent Damali in the review. I suspect that their original request most likely asked for offences to be submitted to them between the period 1975 and 1978, but I can't tell you that for sure. But importantly, it's clear from the Byford report that the request for other offences wasn't repeated later in the series, as it says this on page 51. And remember, page 51 is one of the previously redacted pages, so I'll quote from it now. It is unfortunate that this review exercise was not repeated later in the series, since there were subsequently further assaults in the West Yorkshire area where women had been attacked, in several cases with a hammer, by a man whose description included the fact he had a dark beard and or moustache. Well, I have to say that I think it's more than just unfortunate. P.S. was a lorry driver, and we know that he spent long periods of time in London, for example. He would drive there for work, making deliveries in London and Essex as a lorry driver from 1975 onwards. And importantly, he lived there for a time, when his wife-to-be Sonia was doing her teacher training course and her sister Marianne was there too. And during 1977 and 1978, Sonia frequently went to stay with her sister Marianne and her family in Alperton. P.S. would take her there and he'd collect her afterwards in his car and she may also have travelled down to London with him in his lorry if he had a drop there. Now, investigative journalist Tim Tate and former police intelligence officer Chris Clark have done extensive work timelining P.S. and looking at other offences. In fact, they published a book called The Secret Murders. I commend their dedication to the cause. You see, once P.S. had been arrested, he should have been extensively timelined. That's what we do present day. And it should have been done then to identify other similar offences and they should have been put to him. Again, this isn't rocket science. 
The criteria for linking offences should have been reviewed and the areas that he was known to travel to, including the dates, and his work schedule should have been obtained from clerks. Then a special notice should have gone out requesting other similar offences, particularly once the Byford report had identified 13 other potential offences. They would have had more information to go on, which would have greatly assisted, and they should have put time and energy into this, in my opinion, and I'll come back to this point later. So in Tim Tate and Chris Clark's book, they include Elizabeth Paravicini's murder, amongst many others. And I'm going to be digging into some of their work and drawing my own conclusions. As I said, we do know P.S. travelled extensively, and therefore his vicious attacks on women were not constrained solely to the northeast of England. And as I said at the very start of this case, a detailed timeline of P.S. and his movements are key to understanding other potential offences that he may have committed, along with a rigorous analysis of the victimology and the behaviour at the crime scene by a trained criminal behavioural analyst. And I also want to share with you the Metropolitan Police Service's press release to women in West London following Elizabeth Paravicini's murder. It said this, This was a most brutal attack on a perfectly respectable married woman. We are looking for an extremely savage individual. She was a striking woman. So where to begin? I mean, firstly, they acknowledged this was unusual in the brutality of violence on a lone female. Secondly, they make it very clear that Elizabeth is a so-called worthy victim in their eyes. Oh, it makes me scream every time I see this. Because as I said before, no one deserves to be brutally murdered. None of these women... And thirdly, the fact that they talk about her looks, well, that should have nothing to do with it. How sexist, and what a terrible press release, which I would imagine reassured absolutely no woman. And my last point on this press release is that they knew that this male attacker was a savage and brutal individual, and they must have known that a savage individual was brutally murdering women in a similar way up north, as the whole country was gripped by fear. So again, I have to ask... Did anyone from the Metropolitan Police Service make that call to West Yorkshire Police, I wonder? All sorts of alarm bells should have been ringing, in my opinion. And then once P.S. was caught, was Elizabeth Paravicini's case ever revisited? So many questions. And that's what often happens with analysis. So I think that's enough for now. Your mind may be spinning, holding all of these pieces of information together and analysing all of these offences. It's mind-blowing, really, and in my opinion, the Byford Report should really have drawn all of this together. I mean, who else was going to do it after all? And I'm so glad that I'm doing it now and investing this time and using my experienced analytical female lens, but by God, I feel so frustrated, and it's overwhelming at times to think that this should have been done over 40 years ago and lives would have been saved. So join me back in the Intelligence Cell next week to find out more, and don't forget to look on social media where you'll see all the photo fits that I've mentioned. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. 
The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>